morning, everybody. Again, uh, my name is Josh. I'm the preacher here at Alliance Christian Church. And I would, I would love it if you would join me in prayer before we go into God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we study your Word today, as we dive in, as we try to understand what it is that you want for our life, Father, we just ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would allow us to to get what it is that you need from your word. Father, we ask that you would help us to be faithful students of your word. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help to make my words clear and concise and understandable. I ask that you would help me to handle your word faithfully and true. I ask that you would be with every single person here who is, who is listening to this message, that they would be able to not just hear your word, but to go out into the world and apply it to their lives. And most of all, and most importantly of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, which makes all of this possible. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray. And the church said, so we are on, we're on chapter three, week three of our four-week series in the book of Ruth that I'm calling Finding Hope in Hopeless situations. And here in chapter three, our our sermon today is titled Unexpected Hope. So I want to kind of set the stage and do a little bit of a reset for where we are here in chapter three of the book of Ruth. So in chapter one of Ruth, you have this woman named Naomi who living is living in Israel with her family, with, with her husband Elimelech, and they leave Israel because there's this big famine. They go into the region of Moab, and her husband dies. Her two sons marry women in Moab, and then they die. And so Naomi's left with nothing. She goes back to Bethlehem. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, accompanies her. They go back, and we find throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God is putting seeds of hope in her life. You get into chapter 2, and God provides Boaz, who is, who is providing for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. They're providing food for them throughout the, the harvest season. And as we leave chapter 2, we find out that Boaz is related to Elimelech. Boaz is, is a family redeemer, a family guardian. And, and that's kind of the cliffhanger that we left off. So as we get into chapter 3... Pull up chapter 3 here. This is the situation for Naomi and Ruth. The situation is this. They've been provided for in the short term. Boaz has been there. He's provided them grain and food to eat through the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And so the immediate threat of starvation has been removed. Naomi has a farm. She has a property. She has all of those things, but she doesn't have people to work the farm because she's just a widow with her widow daughter-in-law. And so what, what's going on here as we go into chapter 3 is that the band-aid has been placed over the immediate situation and they can take a breather. But long-term, they're going to need something more. They're not going to be able to just be able to depend on Boaz year after year after year providing for the harvest and providing food for their needs because Boaz is an older man. We don't even know if Boaz is going to be around in a year. And so they need something long-term to move forward in their rebuilding of their life back in Bethlehem. See, the thing 
that you have to understand in order to really get the picture of Ruth is that the family is the core unit of society in this time, not the individual. And so your retirement plan, your plan at all, if you lived in this time period, is to, is to have kids, preferably sons with strong backs who can work the farm and provide for you, and then hopefully those sons will marry and have kids, and preferably their sons with strong backs, and they can work the farm. And that's, that's your plan. That's how you survive. And that's different for us, because we live in 2024 where we live in this individualist society, and even, even the family unit in 2024 is not the same thing as it was then. The family unit today is mom, dad, kids, this nuclear family. But that's not normal. That's only been the norm for the past maybe 200 years or so since the Industrial Revolution when people moved off the farm and moved into town. The normal thing throughout the history of, of humankind has been these multi-generational families in which everyone pitches in, everyone takes care of each other. But today we're living in this hyper-individualist society where I take care of me and my own and everything is me, 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 the family doesn't matter. And in my opinion, I think we are reaching the end of that sort of life cycle in culture I think it's been a failed experiment over the past 200 years or so. A hundred years ago, the average age to get married was around 21. Today, it's setting to surpass 30. That's a huge change. So our, our plan today in our culture is not the same as it was then. Our plan is to take care of the elderly and the widows is, well, the government's going to do it. We're all going to pay taxes, and then Medicare is going to take care of everybody, and Social Security is going to take care of everybody. But if, if people are getting married older and older and older, then what you have is this situation in which people are getting older and older and older. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to see that this experiment we've had over the last hundred years or so is failing. Tax money is just going to run out. That's the situation that we don't have in Ruth. In Ruth, we have this family-oriented, multi-generational family situation. And I, I just want to note, as a church, I think we can look to this and we can do two very important things. This is an aside from, from our scripture. Number one, as a church, we need to step in and fill that multi-generational family void that's being left by our culture. We need to be that family unit that is so missing. And number two, I think we need to stop spreading the myth to our kids and our grandkids that they need to focus on me and focus on career and focus on money first and then go get married and then maybe start a family. I think we need to, to upend that paradigm shift because it's failing. It works in scripture. It's worked throughout history and it's failing today. And so I think we need to be encouraging our kids to to date and to, to get married and, and do all those things that, except for the last 200 years, have been the norm in society. So in Naomi's case here, what she desperately needs is to find a way to be integrated back into that family unit, that caregiver unit, so that she can have some way to, to have this family, to have people to provide for her, to have 
the support that she needs because right now she's all alone with just her and her daughter-in-law. And so as we go into chapter 3, she comes up with a plan. She comes up with a plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth in order to re-kickstart this family that she needs. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 5. It says, At that time, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, as a side note, she's now calling Ruth her daughter and not her daughter-in-law. You can see how this progression is moving forward in their relationship. She says, My daughter, I must find a home for you so that you will be secure. Now Boaz, with whose female servants you worked, is our close relative. Look, tonight he's winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So bathe yourself, rub on some perfumed oil, and get dressed up. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you're there until he finishes his meal. When he gets ready to go asleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down. Then go uncover his legs and lie down beside him, and he will tell you what to do. Ruth replied to Naomi, I will do everything you have told me to do. And there's a lot of cultural gap going on in this passage. So I want to kind of just clear the air here. Number one, Ruth has been in mourning for all of this time. She's been mourning her husband. And so she's probably been wearing mourning clothes, the sackcloth, the ashes, the dark clothing we would think today. And and so... She has been signaling to the world, I am not ready to move on yet from my deceased husband. And so the first thing Naomi tells her to do is go put on nice clothes, get dressed up, take a bath, wipe the ash off your face, put on some perfume so that you can signal to Boaz you are ready to move on. That's why this is so important here. She's signaling, in order for this to work, you have to put yourself out there as being available, being eligible. Number two, Boaz is at the threshing floor. And so as this plan's going out, she says, look, Boaz is out there at the threshing floor. And the threshing floor is the place after the harvest is done. It's outside of town. It's this big open building. You can picture like a gazebo with with a, a door on either side or an open area. It's outside of the walls of the city. And basically what you do is you take all of your grain, the wheat and the chaff and everything, and you take it all to the threshing floor and you, you toss it up in the air, and because it's an open building, there's a breeze that blows through. And so you toss it up in the air, and the chaff blows away with the wind, and the heavier grain kernels fall back to the ground. And so that's how you would separate your wheat from your stalks. So you just go then and throw and throw and throw until all of the stalks, all of the lighter stuff, has blown away. So while that's going on, Your entire livelihood, your entire harvest is there outside of the walls of the city. And so because of this, typically the farmers would go and they would sleep in the threshing floor during that time of the the harvest, during that time of the processing. Because that's, that's, that's like having all of your money and you pull all your money out of your bank account and you just got it sitting outside That's kind of what's going on here. Their entire harvest is sitting outside of the walls of the city, and so they don't leave that until it's been packaged up and brought back into the protective walls of the city. That makes sense. It takes a couple of bandits just five minutes to walk through and see the threshing floor and make away with your entire livelihood for that year. 
So until you get the job done, until you're back in the city behind the protective walls, you don't leave that grain pile. And so the gist of Naomi's plan is this. She says, go down where Boaz is working, wait until he's had a full meal, wait until he's in a good mood, wait until he's happy, in good spirits, and he's gotten some rest for his work, and wait till he falls asleep, and go down and uncover his legs, or your Bible might say foot or feet. Um, the, it's just... The, the whole point is she wants to wake him up quietly and nicely so that he's, he's full and he wakes up on his own and he's in a good mood and he'll wake up and notice her so that she can execute the plan. And, and hopefully if everything goes according to plan, he'll notice her, he'll notice that she's projecting that she's eligible to be married and he'll ask and, and they'll get married and they'll be able to provide a son for Naomi as a surrogate so that Naomi can be provided for, and they can build up this family unit and once again be brought back into the fold and be able to have that support system that they need. But the key in that statement is, if everything goes according to plan. The original audience in Hebrew, when Ruth was written, would have read verses 1 through 5, and they would have instantly been able to think of a million and one different places where this could go wrong. They would have read this, and they would have instantly said, oh no, this is a terrible plan, this is an awful plan, this is never going to work. Here's why. Number one, she chose to go out to the threshing floor. The threshing floor, because it was outside of the city, because it was a place where there were men sleeping at night, because it was a place that was away from the watchful eye of society back in town, that was the place where the prostitutes would go and visit the most. That was the place. If, if you were trying to get away in the night, the best place to go do that hookup would be outside in the threshing floor. And so it kind of had a really, really bad reputation. And so, <coughs> excuse me, the original audience is reading this, and Naomi says, go, yeah, go get dressed up and put on some perfume, go out to the threshing floor. It would take one person to notice her, to watch her, to see her, and her entire reputation would be done for in an instant. Even though Naomi's motives are pure and Ruth's motives are pure, I mean, let's be real. She's going out to the threshing floor, wink, wink. Everyone's going to see that, and if she gets caught, she's done for. She's no longer going to be the sweet widow who came in and... and and was collecting grain and working so hard. Now she's just going to have a bad rap. The second thing comes from verse 3, where he says, she says, so bathe yourself, rub on some perfumed oil, and get dressed up and go down to the threshing floor. But don't let the man know you're there until he finishes his meal. Again, the original audience is reading this, and they're thinking, okay, you've got a Moabite woman and she's trying to secure an heir, and so she goes out till this older man has had his full of his, of his food and his dinner and his wine, and the original audience would have immediately went to Genesis chapter 19. And this is why. I'm going to read Genesis ch chapter 19. This is the story of, of Lot's daughters. It says, Lot went up from Zoar with his two daughters and settled in the mountains because he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Later, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the country to sleep with us the way everyone else does. Come, 
Let's make our father drunk with wine so we can go to bed with him and preserve our family line through our father. So that night they made their father drunk with wine and the older daughter came and went to bed with her father. But he was not aware when she lay down with him or when she got up. So in the morning, the older daughter said to the younger, since I went to bed with my father last night, let's make him drunk again. And you go into bed with your father so we can preserve our family line through our father. In both ways, Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. And this is the important verse that the original audience would have picked up on when they're reading. Ruth, the older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of the Moabites today. First of all, that's my least favorite story in the Old Testament because it gives me the heebie-jeebies. But the, the original audience is reading this situation and Naomi's like, yeah, wait till he's full. Wait till he's had a, a good meal and had a nice glass of wine. They would have instantly said, oh no. Oh no, she's a Moabite woman. She's going to do the thing, isn't she? Oh no, this is bad. This is bad, 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 bad. Because like it or not, there was a bias against Moabites for this reason and many others. They were enemies of the Jews. They had this bad reputation. And so the original audience is reading this and they're like, no, 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 no way. Is this really going to happen? That Genesis 19 story would have popped up in their mind. And if that wasn't bad enough, in verse 4, it says, when he gets ready to sleep, take careful notice of the place where he lies down. Then go uncover his legs, or your Bible might say feet, and lie down beside him, and I will tell you what you should do. So in that sentence, uncover his feet or legs and lie down next to him. In the Hebrew language, all three of those words, uncover and feet and lie with, all had euphemistic undertones to them. All of them were words that were used euphemistically. When, when Naomi says, go uncover, the word uncover or reveal, was, uh, it was a euphemism for doing other things. The word legs or feet was used in ancient Hebrew as a euphemism for another part of the male anatomy. And the word lie with was a euphemism for have sex with. So, I mean, we have that in English, like when you say you're going to sleep with someone, there's two terms for the word. My point is this, when Naomi gives these instructions, she's being completely pure in her motives and her plans are not nefarious, but the original audience is putting two and two together and they're reading this and they're like, oh no, this is a terrible plan. Did she really just tell her to uncover his legs, wink, wink, and lie with him? That's the problem that the original audience is reading. And so they're looking at this plan and they're thinking of a million and ways, million and one ways in which this could go wrong. They're like, what if Ruth completely misreads the situation here? What if she does the wrong thing and she doesn't understand the assignment? Because it could be understood to mean something innocent, but you know, Ruth's a Moabite. You know what they say about those Moabites. You know where they come from, right? Ugh, they might do something nefarious here. And so the original audience is reading this, and they've almost got their hands over their eyes like this, waiting to see whether what's going to happen is what they think is going to happen or if it's going to turn out for good. And so as we get into verse 6, we see the execution of the plan. She says, I'm going to do everything you've told me to do. And as the audience, we're not really sure what that is yet. 
Verse 6 says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her to do. And the audience is like, "Uh Uh-huh. Which is? Verse 7. When Boaz had finished his meal and was feeling satisfied, uh Uh-huh. He lay down to sleep at the far end of the grain heap. Okay. Then Ruth crept. Then Ruth crept up quietly. Uh oh. Okay. Yeah. She uncovered his legs, and the the audience is at this point still like, "What do you mean by that?" She uncovered his legs and lie down beside him. And all of those same words, those same euphemism words, are still there. So in verse seven, the original audience is still reading this with their hair like this, going, "Did she do the right thing or the wrong thing? I need to know." Did she actually do what she was supposed to do? Or is this going to be a tragedy? It's anxiety-inducing. Because again, if, if she does the wrong thing, the whole plan's kaput. She gets run out of town. Naomi has nothing. Ruth has nothing. They're never provided for again. They have this bad reputation. It's going to be horrible. And it's not until verse 8 that we get to just take a sigh of relief because in verse 8 and 9 it says, In the middle of the night... He was startled, or the the Hebrew says he shivered, as in he was cold, and he turned over. Now he saw a young woman lying beside him. He said, who are you? She replied, I am Ruth, your servant. Marry your servant, for you are a guardian of the family interests. Oh, thank goodness. That's what the original audience is thinking. Oh, my goodness. That was, I can't handle this. She did the right thing. She did the noble thing even though the Israelite audience was probably half expecting her to do the wrong thing, half expecting her to do what their bias about her they thought she was going to do. Verse 10, Boaz says to Ruth, he says, May you be rewarded by the Lord, my dear. This act of devotion is greater than what you did before. For you have not sought to marry one of the young men, whether rich or poor. He says, Now, my dear, don't worry. I intend to do for you everything you propose, for everyone in the village knows that you are a worthy woman. By the way, her act of devotion, just to make sure we're understanding here, her act of devotion is the fact that Ruth is not going to Boaz so that Ruth can have an heir for her own family line. She's not going there for herself so that she can have a son, so that she can be a mother. That's not what she's doing. Ruth can go back to Moab and find a Moabite husband and do that no problem. What she's doing is she's being a surrogate for Naomi so that Naomi can have an heir, so that Naomi's life can be put back together. And so she is sacrificing everything because Naomi is unable to provide for herself. So that's her act of devotion. And so Boaz says, yes, I'll do this thing for you. And as we go into chapter 4, as we finish out chapter 3, we're going to get introduced to one other little wrinkle in the drama that's going to leave us on a cliffhanger. So I want to finish out chapter 3, but I'm just going to leave you hanging. In verse 12, it says, Now, yes, it's true that I am a guardian, but there is another guardian who is a closer relative than I am. He says, remain here tonight. Then in the morning, if he agrees to marry you, fine, let him do so. But if he does not want to do so, I promise as surely as the Lord lives to marry you, sleep here until 
morning. So this, this cliffhanger we're going to get left on is the fact that there's somebody else who is legally first in line in order to, to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And so the, the cliffhanger we're left on is we know Boaz. We know his character. We know what he does. We know how he provides. We don't know this other guy. And so it's at this point where the original audience is like, I'm not sure about this. This is during the time of the judges. This other guy could be a great guy, or he could be a total schmuck, and this could be a terrible thing. I'm really hoping it's Boaz, because at least we know Boaz, and we trust him. But regardless, Boaz says, I'm going to settle the matter. No matter what, I'm going to take care of you. And he, and he says in verse 14, he says, So she slept beside him until morning. She woke up while it was still dark. Boaz thought, no one must know that a woman visited the threshing floor. Then he said, hold out the shawl as your shawl you are wearing and grip it tightly. As she held it tightly, he measured about 60 pounds of barley into the shawl and put it on her shoulders. Then he went into town and she returned to her mother-in-law. It says, when Naomi returned to her mother-in-law, when Ruth returned to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did things turn out for you, my daughter? Ruth told her about all the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these 60 pounds of barley, for he said to me, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, stay put, my daughter, for until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has taken care of the matter today. So leaving aside our cliffhanger, you're going to have to come back next week, and if you've read the story, you know what happens, but let's, we're going to pretend like we don't know what's going to happen. Leaving us that aside, I want to think about what we can take away from this chapter. And here's what I don't want us to take away from this story. What I don't want us to read here is, and I, I don't want us to think to ourselves, you know, if we're just faithful enough like Ruth was, if we're just obedient enough, and if we just do the right things, then oh, God's just going to take care of all of our troubles. That's an overly simplistic view of Scripture, and I think it's a dangerous view to hold. That idea that reads these Old Testament stories and we think to ourselves, like, oh, if I, man, if I just show as much faith as Ruth did, then, well, then I'm never going to get sick again, and I'm always going to be provided for, and I'm always going to be able to, to have everything I need. That's not how it works. So I caution you, please don't read these passages and think that to yourself. Oh, I should just... Because what happens is, then when you're not provided for, you fall into this dangerous loop of thinking like, oh, maybe I just didn't have enough faith. Oh, maybe God doesn't love me because I wasn't obedient enough because I haven't been taken care of. And, and that's a... <laughs> Don't think that because that's what happens when that's what our faith is like. In fact, the Bible promises the exact opposite. My favorite passage to illustrate this comes from the book of John where where Jesus tells his disciples, I've told you these things. He's given them this big speech. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have trouble and suffering. The NIV says, you will have suffering. That's a, that's a guarantee. 
That's not a, well, you might have some suffering and you might not. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble and suffering, but take heart, take courage, for I have conquered the world. And I think if that message of if you're just faithful enough, if you just, you just, just do what Ruth did, if you just act like Ruth, then God will remove your pain and suffering, that creates a weak faith. Rather, what I think we should take away from this passage is what it tells us about God. The first thing that this passage tells us about God is that God works with unexpected people. The lead-up to the book of Ruth all has to do with the Israelites and their failure to keep God's covenant. And here in Ruth, we have this Moabite woman, this foreigner, who the entire original audience had a bias against, and we have somebody who has no business being involved in God's promise with his people. Logistically, God's promise was with Israel, not Moab. And this foreigner comes in and God brings her into the fold and takes care of her, just like she was an Israelite? God works with the people that we would never expect. He brings Moabite widows into the family of faith just like that. We're the ones that have the inside-outside bias. God is willing to work with anyone who shows love to him. He's willing to take the least suspecting person that we can imagine and redeem her. God works with unexpected circumstances. This plan should have never worked. Realistically, this was a terrible plan. There were a million and one things that could have went wrong. And by human standards, Ruth chapter 3 is like the worst plan anybody could have ever come up with. But God seems to thrive using these unexpected people in unexpected circumstances. He seems to thrive in situations in which the plan is horrible and God's like, that's okay, because I'm big enough I can take a horrible plan and make it work anyway. Look at what Jesus did. Like if you, if you could get in a time machine, and let's, let's pretend like we don't have the benefit of the doubt and knowing how everything turned out. And let's say we could get in a time machine and go back to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Uh, I don't know. I've never read the Bible, so, but I know you're the Messiah. So what's, what's this plan? Are you going to gather you up some, some disciples? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to think I'm going to get some followers. And you're like, great. Um, let's get some really like some ringers for the team. Let's get some, some scribes and some, some religious leaders, maybe some impassionate public speakers. Now, you'd have an a, a team here. And Jesus is like, ah, I was thinking about that tax collector over there. Everybody hates them. And maybe those, those roughneck fishermen, I think I might let them join the team. And maybe some women, you know, because women don't really have any status in today's society. So I'll make them my followers and some poor people, some paralytics. You're like, okay, Jesus, wouldn't have been my first plan, but it's your show. It's yours. Okay, well, who are you going to preach to? Who are you going to give this, this message to, this Messiah message? Some influential people, maybe? Some kings? 
more religious leaders, you know, get them on your good side? Are you going to hang out in Israel, uh, Jerusalem? Because that's the sort of central hub. That would be a really good plan, Jesus. And he's like, no, nah, I was thinking about going over to Galilee. It's this far off town over, it's like a fishing town that nobody's ever really been to. And I was thinking I might preach this message to a bunch of lepers and sinners and, you know, paralyzed people. Okay, Jesus, you've got this ragtag team together and you're going to go off in some little town and preach to a bunch of nobodies. Okay, uh, you're eventually going to go to Jerusalem, right? And he's like, yes, I'm going to Jerusalem. You're like, that's the perfect Jesus. Go to Jerusalem, go to the capital. What are you going to do? You're going to, you know, get on everybody's good side and all the super influential people so that you can have this, you know, coalition and you can rise up and have this, this, this message that overthrows Rome and everyone's going to love you. And Jesus is like, nah, I was thinking about going over there and, and making everybody mad and then telling them all the things they're doing wrong and then telling them that I'm the son of God so that they murder me. That's a terrible plan. That's a terrible plan. It should never work. But God makes it work. Because God works with unexpected purposes. What we don't understand in our time machine conversation with Jesus, if we could have a time machine conversation with God during the book of Ruth, is that God's purpose is to defeat sin and death in the world. What we don't understand until we get to the very end of the book of Ruth is that his purpose is not just to redeem Naomi. His purpose is to redeem the world. Because, spoiler alert, that child that Ruth is going to have, that surrogate, that she's going to be a surrogate, is going to end up being the grandfather of King David. That King David that we read about in 1 Samuel, you know, the scrawniest of the brothers who should have been last on the dodgeball team that God picks to be king, God ends up making a promise with him that he'll have a descendant who will rule on his throne forever and build a temple which shall never fail. And we're not talking about Solomon here. We're talking about Jesus the temple is the church. The stones are his people. The cornerstone is Christ. That's how big God's purposes are. And so all the way back in the barley fields, however many thousands of years it was before Christ, when a widow went out and all she was trying to do was scrounge up enough grain so that she could survive through the harvest... All the way back then, God was enacting his plan to redeem you and me. God sees us sitting here thousands of years later, clear back when Ruth was collecting barley, when she was going down to the threshing floor, God was working on purposes beyond what we can comprehend because he takes unexpected people like Ruth. And he uses them to carry out unexpected plans, just like this crazy scheme at the threshing floor. And he uses that for unexpected purposes, to redeem the world through a son, through a Roman implement of execution, through an empty grave. I ask you to 
find the unexpected purposes in your life. Find the unexpected plans in your life and, and lean on God and trust that he knows what he's doing. Will you pray with me? Father, you are so great. We, we can't even fathom the way you see the world. And so, God, we just ask that you would help us to be humble servants of you. We ask that you would help us to do what you say, that you would help us to just go with your plan, no matter how crazy it might seem, no matter how unexpected it might seem. We submit to you and to your will and to your purposes. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. And the church said,